Hi friends, it's good to be with you. My name is Tom Arrington. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. This summer, uh, many of us have engaged in small groups where we've read and discussed Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. And I have to say that it was a vulnerable and a powerful time for me, and I think for the people in our groups too, because we discuss systemic racism and oppression here in America, now, today, and we recognize that it is a part of our communities, part of our families, and sadly, part of us individually. It was a real awakening as we listened and heard different perspectives and learned from each other and finished our time together, I believe, as better people, more informed and more committed to being allies for our black sisters and brothers, and more willing to speak up and call out white supremacy when we see it. And I mentioned this book today because there's a part in chapter two where I so appreciate how Austin, the author, describes how she would go to her father's church, a church mostly of black people and a black pastor, and she fell in love at her dad's church with black Jesus, who for her was a Jesus who saw the poor and sick and hurting, a Jesus who had bigger plans for me than keeping me a virgin, a Jesus who loved and reveled in our blackness. A Jesus who sounded like a black person dealing with familiar hardships of life. You see, Austin is talking about a Jesus who cares about injustice and broken relationships and the pain of being called names. A Jesus who cares for the woman who doesn't have transportation or the man who doesn't pay the light or water bill or the folks that are addicted to drugs or alcohol. And friends, I can fall in love with a Jesus like this too. This Jesus is real and relevant and concerned with what is happening in our world today. And I think Austin is contrasting this black Jesus with a Jesus that she experienced and I've experienced and maybe you have experienced in so many white churches where the focus is on the theology of Luther and Calvin and Barth and the decisions made at the early councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon where the emphasis is on, a person, is on personal salvation and moral adherence and just me, the me I want to be, or the life that you've always wanted. This is the nice Jesus. This is the Jesus who doesn't make people feel uncomfortable, that is silent and is never angry and emphasizes peace and getting along at all costs. And friends, this is the Jesus I grew up with and what my church stood for. But the good news is that the Jesus who cares for the poor and the oppressed, that cares for the other, is the core of Jesus' mission and his message in the gospel. This Jesus is not a theological concept or simply about self-improvement 2.0, but rather a liberating presence in the lives of the poor and the outsiders in their fight for dignity and worth. This is the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the books Paul wrote and Austin Channing Brown wrote, and James Cone wrote, and Martin Luther King wrote. And this is the Jesus we find in our passage today here in chapter 4 of Luke. So here's the scene. Jesus returns to Galilee, and he begins to teach in the synagogues, which, to be clear, are meeting houses in Jewish communities where women and men could gather together in community and worship. And in the first century, these worship services would have focused on the Torah, which are the first five books of the Hebrew scripture. And this was the core of synagogue worship at that time. 
reading the Torah, but they sometimes included in their services a reading from the books of the prophets, and sometimes they might hear a sermon. And here's the thing. Anyone could speak and teach in a synagogue if they had something of significance to say. And Jesus, he had a lot to say. So it was his habit to take the role of the one who read scripture or the one who preached in the synagogue. And as we know, Jesus was a good teacher. He was. The text says that the people marveled at his teaching, at his wisdom. And so Jesus is teaching in these synagogues throughout Galilee, and he eventually went to a synagogue in the city of Nazareth, Nazareth, which is his hometown, on the Sabbath day, which was his custom. And he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read. And scholars believe in this period, in the first century, there were probably no assigned readings in the prophets. The readers could simply choose their favorite passage. So Jesus, get this, he takes the scroll and he unrolls it until he finds the scripture that he wants to read. And he chooses Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after reading this specific scripture, the one Jesus chose for the day, Jesus sits down and everyone is watching him in that synagogue. And he makes this announcement. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this depiction of Jesus's reading and preaching in the local synagogue here in Nazareth is generally recognized as the gospel's signature story. And it's only in Luke as Jesus announces that he fulfills Isaiah's prediction, Isaiah's promise, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah, and that a new era has begun, the kingdom of God, and that it, it is to be formed by, by the people of all nations, for everyone, for all. But Jesus emphasizes through this reading in Isaiah that the kingdom is especially good news for the poor where the imprisoned are set free, where the oppressed are unchained, and the blind receive sight. You see, Jesus is making it clear that the poor are the primary recipients of Jesus' ministry. So who are the poor? Well, the poor could certainly be those that lack money or those who are feeling spiritually or emotionally drained and weak. But these definitions of the poor are probably inadequate given the ancient Mediterranean culture and social world of the first century. Because in that culture, one's status or honor in a community was not so much a function of one's economic reality, but depended on other factors like education, gender, family heritage, religious purity, and vocation. The people with these characteristics, they fit in. They had the respect of the community. They had honor and prestige and power. So to be poor in this culture reflected a person that didn't have honor, that didn't have status in their society. They didn't have these culturally desired characteristics. And because of that, they were viewed as undesirables or less thans, or people that just don't fit in, that just don't matter, that are downtrodden, or just outsiders who are oppressed and treated badly by people in power. But here's the thing. Jesus had good news because his primary mission was to tell these people, the poor, these outsiders, that they are loved, that they have worth, that they have favor with God, and that through him, 
They would be healed and restored into this new kingdom, this new community where they can flourish with status and honor and purpose. And Jesus is telling all those listening in the synagogue, the hearers in this room, today it is fulfilled. Like today, the world has access to this reality. He's saying, you Jews who are living under Roman oppression, who are suffering and not happy about it, the kingdom of God is coming. It's a new era, and you can be a part of it to change the world, to upend the powers and systems and earthly structures to bring about fulfillment, this new reality. Because today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that phrase, in your hearing, is significant beyond what it might initially seem when we read the text. We can literally translate it as, in your ears. And by adding it to the end of this proclamation, Jesus is keeping in line with the prophets who came before him, who also used this small little phrase, in your hearing. For instance, in Deuteronomy 6, when Moses announces the law to the people of Israel at multiple points, he uses the phrase, hear, O Israel. Now, he's not just trying to get their attention at that moment. He's saying, hear this, and by hearing it, you will do it. You will participate in it. Follow these laws. In them is the fullness of life. The idea then is that hearing is not merely a passive action whereby the people in the synagogue just witness information and go on. Jesus isn't just proclaiming something about his own calling. As hearers, they are actually invited to participate in that calling. The New Testament theologian Joel Green put it this way. He says, Jesus' final words in your hearing do more than signify the locale of this preaching as if to say in your presence. By building on the traditional role of hearing and revelation and the symbol of the listening ear as a sign of openness to the divine message, this phrase invites even demands response. Appropriately then, the episode moves from address to reaction. In other words, Jesus announces his own calling will be this global, even universal reordering of values and systems and power structures whereby freedom and healing and sight for the blind will be the primary markers of this new thing that he is doing. And he's saying to his listeners, in your hearing, you are a part of this calling. If you follow me, if you are filled by me, you will be active, willful, fruit-bearing agents of this kingdom in every season, in every situation, and in every circumstance, good, bad, or ugly. Whatever the context, this is your calling. Now, it's worth naming that this particular notion of calling in all situations and context is sort of out of alignment of how we tend to think about that word. We tend to think about calling as a particular window within our lifespan, right? If I am a student or I'm in the early stages of my career, I think of calling in terms of the future, something I'm trying to figure out. If I am retired, I often think of calling as a time that has passed, that it was something former, something connected to vocation. But Jesus, in this moment, he confronts that assumption and essentially says that all who hear this are called to participate in it. Young or old, student or retired, stay-at-home parent or single tech worker in the Silicon Valley, in your hearing, you have a calling. 
And one of the helpful things about the story is that Jesus doesn't just communicate with words, but he offers us this example in himself of what it means to do this, what it means to live out a calling in a particular time. Notice that Jesus had a body. Jesus was born into a particular time and place. He was born into a particular religion. Uh, religion. Uh, he had parents. He had a particular income. He had a particular family history and personality that was unique to him. He walked certain streets. He spoke a certain language. He lived under a certain government. And all of this means that if we take Jesus' incarnation seriously, that Jesus became human, if we take that seriously, then we must also take the conditions where we are placed today, in this time, in this season, seriously. Wherever you are right now, not next year, where you are now, this is the place of your calling. Notice in our passage today that Jesus lives out his calling in his particular context, and he does so by both embracing and challenging the norms that come with it, right? He is in a Jewish synagogue. He is affirming the weekly practice of worship. He's participating in it. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, affirming the beauty and the shaping truth of Scripture. God created the world. He loves it and participates in it. And then we come to a point in the story where tension is introduced, where Jesus, who has affirmed the norms of the context he's in, now changes his tune as he observes and confronts a flaw in their thinking. You see, these people, they were amazed and impressed by Jesus' gracious words and what he said. But their view and self-interest shifted to what Jesus could do, especially for them. And they thought to themselves, why isn't Jesus doing for us what he did in Capernaum? Capernaum, where he did miracles. Capernaum, where he put on a show. Capernaum, where he impressed the crowd. They are saying, we want you, Jesus, but we want you only insofar as you can do things for us. And Jesus, he clarifies that his mission for which he was anointed has its precedent in the prophetic activity of Elijah and Elisha. You see, Elijah was sent to help a widow, but here's the thing. She wasn't a Jewish widow. She was a non-Jew who was without question a person of low status. But Elijah helped her even though she was an outsider. And then Elisha healed one solitary leper, a Syrian. And this leper was the commander not of Israel's army, but of the enemy's army. And you have to understand that these stories that Jesus is telling, they are utterly offensive to his audience because they are stories of healing and God's grace on outsiders. People they viewed as not God's people, and this infuriates them. They become filled with rage. And the text says that these people, they drove Jesus out of the town to the top of a hill to throw him off a cliff, this son of Joseph, the person who just moments before was one of them. Some scholars say that these people of Nazareth, they were so enraged that they wanted to stone him to death, which would fulfill scriptural legislation that you see in Deuteronomy 13, where it says that a false prophet, a person making a false claim to have divine legitimization as a prophet, should be stoned to death because he's, because he's trying to turn others away from the Lord your God. You see, these Jews in Nazareth, they reject Jesus' Jesus's assertion and identity that he is the anointed one. They want a Messiah, they do, but they want a Messiah who will be on their team, 
They want a savior who will promote their cause. But Jesus says, no, that's not actually, not actually the way of my kingdom. There is this reordering, this reorienting, whereby to follow Jesus, you have to see the world and the people and your calling in different terms. And for Jesus, this meant embracing the widow, the unclean, the Gentile, the outsiders, and those of the lowest status. But these people, they don't want that. And the text says that Jesus passed through them and went on his way. Now, it's important to understand here in Luke 4 what Jesus did within the context that he's placed. It's, it's a good model. He both affirms and he challenges. He works within the system. He goes to the synagogue and teaches. And then he has simultaneously subversed the system by speaking up and clarifying his message, clarifying truth, even if there is tension. And like Jesus, we have a calling in every season, in every situation it's a calling that must be informed by both an intimacy with Jesus when we hear his message and know his heart, which compels us and fills us with a desire for action and purpose. And we need to have an awareness and an understanding of the uniqueness of our culture and context today. And like Jesus, we need to step into that context. And where there is truth and beauty, we affirm and we contribute. And where there's injustice and suffering, we challenge and we participate in the reorientation that God is bringing about. There's an author some of you may have heard of by the name of David Brooks. And he wrote a really interesting article a few years back called At the Edge of the Inside. And our very own Pastor Danielle did a full sermon on this theme in October 2017. And it's a really good sermon, one of my favorites, and you might want to check it out later. But the main point of this article is that within any organization, there are those on the inside who are sort of blinded by the flaws of the group because they're so entrenched. And then there are those on the outside who are antagonistic toward the organization. He calls them missile throwers. They hate everything that the organization is about. But there's another important group, he says, which is those who are on the edge of the inside. These are the people who are for the good of the organization, but they're not caught up in groupthink. They love the organization, but they can see its flaws. In Brooks, he identifies the uniqueness of this last group. He writes, when you live on the edge of any group, you are free from its central seduction, but also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. Now, I love this article because in certain ways, it is describing the tension and the calling that we experience as followers of Jesus, living in this day and the time that we do. This is what we're supposed to do, right? God so loved the world, and yet God is making all things new. This area we live in, it is brimming with beauty and glory, with the bay and the oceans and the bridges and the trees and the Golden State Warriors. There's no place like it in the world and, this, and then this area of ours is also sick and broken with homelessness, with selfishness and greed, and with neighborhoods that people can't afford anymore because they've been priced out and they have to uproot and go somewhere else. Everywhere we go, we see this tension of brokenness and goodness, beauty and tragedy, glory and heartbreak. It's in our world today. And as people, we, we have heard the message of the anointed one. And we need to step into the world today, loving it the way Jesus did. And then in our respective and unique and particular context, we are 
able to apply the core message of God's fullness for all people in new and creative ways, the way that Jesus did. In a way, you could say our calling is to live on the edge of the inside. One of my favorite recent stories that illustrates this notion so well has to do with NASCAR. Okay, I know we are in California and most of us don't watch NASCAR, but I started watching it in June after I heard the story of Bubba Wallace. Now you may be wondering, who is Bubba Wallace? Well, he's currently the only African-American driver in NASCAR's top flight racing series. And he really recently got the organization to bar the Confederate flag at its events. Pretty amazing, right? And this has put Bubba Wallace in the spotlight in a sport whose owners, drivers, crews, and fans have historically been predominantly white. Bubba Wallace, he's 26 years old, and he grew up in Alabama and North Carolina. And he began to dream about racing when he was nine years old. And as he got older, he pursued his dream by getting involved in NASCAR, starting at the lowest tier and then working his way up as he won more and more races. And then his big moment came in 2017 when Bubba replaced an injured driver in the number 43 car, made famous by the... um, Famous driver Richard Petty. Bubba was the first black racer in NASCAR's top circuit since 2006, and he has never looked back, staying a full-time driver on the top circuit, including including a second-place finish at the Daytona 500 in 2018. But he's more than a driver he is, and he, is, and he has really stood up and challenged the system in early June uh, when he wore a shirt reading, I can't breathe. Black Lives Matter, along with an American flag face mask. And then he called for the removal of the Confederate flag from the NASCAR events. Now, to be clear, NASCAR has started asking fans to stop bringing Confederate flags to races in 2015. But many fans just ignored their request, and flags were often seen on T-shirts and hats and at tailgates and flying from cars and trucks near the track. But Bubba didn't stop there. Bubba and his team revealed a new paint scheme for the storied 43 car. It was all black with a Black Lives Matter message on the side. And he spoke up and said that the Confederate flag is a symbol of hate. And it brings so many bad memories. He said, there's no good that comes from that that flag. And that's the message that we're trying to get across. And NASCAR, the organization, they were listening. They heard the message and they responded by barring the Confederate flag at all events. What an incredible change, especially since NASCAR has been around for 72 years. I'm sure you're aware that there's lots of people that don't like what Bubba is doing or what Bubba is saying. There's been a controversy about a noose being put up in his car's garage that some people are saying it's just, it's an ugly expression of racism, that it is a threat of lynching. And some say it's just a rope with a handle to close the garage, though most will admit that the the noose doesn't look like any garage poles that they've ever seen. And Bubba has received ugly tweets from the highest levels. But how does Bubba respond? He responds with this to the next generation and little ones following my footsteps. Your words and actions will always be held to a higher standard than others. You have to be prepared for that. You don't learn these things in school. You learn them from trials and tribulations, the ups and downs this crazy world provides. You will always have people testing you, seeing if they can knock you off your pedestal. 
I encourage you to keep your head held high and walk proudly on the path you have chosen. Never let anybody tell you you can't do it, you can't do something. God put us all here for a reason. Find that reason and be proud of it and work your tails off every day towards it. All the haters are doing is elevating your voice and platform to much greater heights. I love how Bubba teaches us about calling. A man who loves what he's doing. It's what he does. And he loves it more than anything. He shows up in that context and he does the work. But he also sees the horrific injustices of our culture and our world. He knows that what he's doing is about something far more than just driving a car. Bubba is challenging deeply ingrained beliefs that run against the way of Jesus, and he's doing it with creativity. He's doing it with courage. He's doing it with a crazy fast car. Over the course of the last several years, we've seen white supremacists and neo-Nazis march in the street. We've seen immigrants and refugees turned away, dehumanized, put in cages, and blamed for every ill of society. We've seen DACA students fighting for their lives here in America. We've seen the dignity and civil rights of our LGBTQ friends under siege. We've seen the degradation and objectification of women normalized as an acceptable part of culture, where it is just thought, boys will be boys. We've seen the ugliness of racism and people of color dying in our street. People like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And I know that for a lot of us, we see this horrific shift in our culture right now as raw and unsettling. And you have every right to feel sad, to be disappointed, and to be angry. And I'm angry too because deep down I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for so many of the pastors and leaders who raised me in the Christian faith, who introduced me to Jesus, who taught me everything I know about truth and morality and decency to confront and to challenge these views and say, of course, black lives matter. Of course, we don't support taking migrant children away from their parents. Of course, we don't think it's okay to grab women without their permission. Of course, churches should prioritize the physical and mental safety of children above the reputation of the church or church leadership. Of course, everyone, regardless of their sexual orientation, is welcome and celebrated within the church. Of course, we believe that Jesus meant it when he said that whatever you've done for the least of these, you have done for me. I keep waiting and waiting and waiting and every single time that it doesn't happen, when all I hear from so many leaders in the church is silence, I am disappointed. I feel let down. But here's the thing, I would rather be angry than apathetic and be involved and active than just be silent and do nothing. And the reality is that for many Christians, they see anger and engagement as a destructive force. That Christians should just be kind and nice and patient and peaceful, staying in the lines. And anger is none of those things. Now, to be clear, yes, anger can be harmful. It can. When it becomes energy to strike out, to harm. But it can also be a force for good. Anger can be a force that tells us something is wrong. And I like the way Austin Channing Brown writes about it, uh, about, about anger. This is what she says. My anger didn't destroy me. It did not leave me alone and desolate. On the contrary, my anger undergirded my calling, my vocation. 
It gave me the courage to say hard things and write that black lives are on the line. It shouldn't have surprised me. I serve a God who experienced and expressed anger. One of the most meaningful passages of scripture for me is found in the New Testament, where Jesus leads a one-man protest inside the temple walls. Jesus shouts at the corrupt temple officials, overturns furniture, sets animals free, blocks the doorways with his body, and carries a weapon, a whip, through the, through the place. Jesus throws folks out of the building and, so, and in so doing creates space for the most marginalized to come in. The poor, the wounded, the children. I imagine the next day's newspapers called Jesus' anger destructive. But I think those without power would have said that his anger led to freedom, the freedom of belonging, the freedom of healing, and the freedom of, of participating as full members in God's house. Friends, we need to be more like Jesus. Yes, who loves, but also who, aff who affirms and challenges, who works within the system and simultaneously subverts the system when it is broken. And so we can't just be numb and removed. When things are broken and not right, we have a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and to speak out. We need to continue to take action, to do good trouble, necessary trouble to turn over to tables if we must, and to continue to show up for those that are poor and hurting and marginalized and lonely and sick, which is following Jesus even when we don't know how it will turn out. Friends, calling is not a thing of the past or something you look forward to once you have a second degree. It's for this time. It's for now. As long as you have a context, you have a calling. As long as you're living, you have a context. So we might start this today by asking the question, what is my context? And I encourage you, don't just ask that question and let it hang there. Spend some time with it this week. Sit down, write it out. What is happening in our world, in our country, in our community? Where do you work? Where do you live? Who's in your neighborhood? What are the schools? Who are the poor in your community? What are the greatest needs there? Where do I have time in my schedule? If you live with family or roommates, I would encourage you to sit down and to do this together and then follow those questions with this one. How in this time, this season, am I called to be a person who embodies the fullness of Christ in new and creative ways, in a way that only I can do because of where I am? I love seeing how so many of you here at Spark regularly do this. We have people here at Spark that are trying to raise the, aware, the awareness of the level of racism in our culture by having people stand on a corner on El Camino in a silent and socially distanced protest. And by having people put up signs in their yards that say black lives matter because black lives matter. There's a person in our church who decided to come alongside a refugee family, being available to them, befriending them, learning from them, and helping them to adjust to this new home and space here in the Silicon Valley. One of our members regularly writes letters to senior citizens to help these senior citizens find community. It's about the lonely being less lonely. Friends, when we hear God's message and then do something about it, we can help others experience the kingdom of God and the fullness of God in our particular time and place. So today, in this time, what do you hear? What is your context? And where are you called? 
Friends, we're going to shift now and go into a time of communion. And here's the good news. God loves you. And we are the body of Christ. We are his people. So let us eat and drink and remember Jesus who loves and changes people to be more like him. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, the table is open and everyone is invited.